Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Um, I don't think I have to introduce this person. I'll let him do it himself. Go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm Tommy Chong, the, the better looking half of the Cheech and Chong comedy team. <laughs> I'm also the husband of a very gorgeous TikTok star named Shelby Chong. And I'm also the father of a very uh, ambitious uh, entrepreneur named Paris Chong. <laughs> My son, and oh, and I'm also the dad of a very successful, well-known actress, Ray Don Chong, and I'm also uh, the father of a, a very clever movie maker uh, who's got a movie coming out very shortly, and her name is Robbie Chong, and then I have another daughter in Vancouver in uh, uh, Toronto who did a horror movie, and she's quite in demand now she's working her name is precious chong and i'm also a husband of a very gorgeous lady who uh is now studying art among with her ballroom dancing and her tango dancing and uh and she's doing portraits in fact she's made it a career of doing portraits of tommy chong and that's shelby chong so that's that's part of my introduction. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, very, very proud gentleman. Why don't we go back far enough to you picking up a guitar that was kind of, I guess, your start into the entertainment. What what attracted you attracted you to the guitar? Well, when my mother was uh, pregnant with me, uh, and. Uh, I guess my dad was somewhere on the road or something. Anyway, she ordered a, a, a guitar from Sears, the Sears catalog, and it had a little mermaid, a little girl on it, and uh, I got it here. Not the mermaid. The, the guitar actually fell apart, and I, I had it restored. Uh, and it was always in the house, uh, for, as far as I can remember, and uh, no one played it. And then I started playing. I found out I had a a good ear for music uh, when I would visit my cousin who had an accordion, a 12-bass accordion. And I would just go in his room, and I'd be in there for hours, just whittling away, playing away on the accordion. And, in fact, when I went to uh, Army Cadets, I, I took the accordion with me. But then I soon realized that it really wasn't the most manly uh, <laughs> instrument <laughs> in an army barracks, you know, unless you could really play the hell out of it, which I couldn't do. And so I carried the accordion to camp and then home, never touched <laughs> it. But I had a buddy in, in there who played guitar and I knew a, a little bit of little, little guitar. So I, I started playing, playing backup guitar. A rhythm guitar and then I got good enough that I ended up playing with a fiddle player <clears throat> when I was eight from the time I was eight until I was about 
16, I, I, I would periodically play with a fiddle player. And uh, then I met a very good uh, Lindy Hop dancer, or jive, jive dancer, uh, who was also a football player and who also played a little guitar. And we ended up forming a band. And it was the first rhythm and blues band in uh, Calgary. Nice. And so, so I, uh, and then I learned, then I learned the guitar from Chuck Berry. I learned how to play Chuck Berry songs. I learned how to play Bo Diddley. I learned all the, uh, all the uh, rhythm and blues uh, uh, catalog. And uh, then eventually, I, we got kicked out of Calgary. <laughs> <laughs> Old racist Calgary. It was a racist move. Because we, we had a teen club, and we were packing packing them in uh, every weekend at uh, the Legion Hall in Calgary. But after the dance, the kids would go and create mischief in the city. And so rather than to do their job and, and stop the kids from creating mischief, they thought it would be a good idea if the band who the kids liked got out of town. Always blame the band. Yeah. When in doubt, yeah, blame the so, band. <laughs> yeah, so they, they kicked us out. The mayor called us into his office and literally told us to leave. Now, I, I had a, just lately, I've you know, been going over that story and I realized, you know, why did we get called into the mayor's office? You know, why didn't they just shut us down like they, like they did? And say, okay, that's it. No more dances. Right. Well, the reason was is that I, in my uh, nativity, uh, hooked up with a, a guy that ran the, the city's boys club. And so he, he, as a result, he knew, he helped me form a charter for a, uh, a teen club. And so legally, the cops should not have even approached me uh, other than to, to complain maybe about the, uh, the noise or something, right. you know, but definitely not about gathering of people uh, for dancing, you know, because legally I was covered. Right. Uh, but they, they, they just used, you know, our ignorance in fear, you know, here we're in the mayor's office, the chief of police, everybody's there. Intimidation. So, intimidation. And so we left. So we left. And, and to tell you the truth, I was ready to leave. I was ready to leave Calgary. Even though it was successful, the dances were packed, everything was great. I had the travel bug. I always had all my life. And so any excuse to leave, to travel, <laughs> I'm in. So where did you go after you left uh, Vancouver? Or sorry, we Calgary. We drove right, right to Vancouver. We left Calgary right to Vancouver. And, and the funny thing is, the first gig we got, <laughs> it was with this racist uh, Italian, uh, kind of, I guess he was a gangster, kind of. He uh, owned a cab company, and and they, they had this nightclub. And... <laughs> And when he saw the band, he said, uh, the, well, when the manager or something says, okay, you guys 
you eat in the kitchen and you do not mess with the waitresses. <laughs> oh, we laughed at that, boy. The first thing we said, where's the waitresses? What waitresses? <laughs> <laughs> and they were quite, quite pretty. They were very pretty. And, uh, of course, the first, first night, you know, they ended up coming with a band. And because we weren't allowed to eat in the dining room, which we would never did anyway, we went, we went to Chinatown. And we're all sitting around this big brown table in Chinatown. And the car, cabs showed up. About three cabs from this, this place, they showed up. And then these guys got out of the cab, thugs with big bats. Oh, Jesus. And then they, they went into the Chinese restaurant, and they stood behind each of us with a bat. <laughs> More intimidation. And then, they told, and then they told the girls, come on, you guys, come on, get in the car. And, and of course, the girls started saying, no, you're not my dad, you know that. <laughs> and, uh, and the band, we said, you girls go. <laughs> <laughs> Was the girls, we're, we're very sorry we interrupted your life. <laughs> and then... Uh, so the girls left, they got in, the, they left with these guys. And then the band, we're all sitting looking at each other, go, geez, what the hell just happened? <laughs> the girls come running back. They jumped out of the cart the first light and they came running back. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we all got up and we paid the bill and got the hell out of there. And we're driving in our, my, uh, the drummer. Is, is Buick, and and it was on its last legs. We had just driven it from Calgary to Vancouver, and it was dying on us. And then next thing you know, we look in the back rearview mirror or the back window, and here comes a cab chasing us. And he's actually, they're chasing us. <laughs> and, oh, man, we our car died. We went looking for weapons. We found, you know, you got a, a tire iron or something. <laughs> and we went out to meet our fate, and it was uh, our drummer. In the cab. <laughs> yeah, it was our drummer. Hey, why, why didn't you guys stop? Didn't you hear me honking? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, he, and he showed up with news that, that we got a new gig. We, got, we, we don't have to. We're, we're quit. We, you know, we obviously are not at that place anymore. We played one night and then uh, we got a new gig. And, and so that was his news. But our life has been, uh, and, and that really set everything in motion. I mean, that the racism and the, and the humor uh, it just went together. You um, actually had a billboard uh, hit. With uh, what is it? Does your mama know? Does your mama know about me? Um, yeah. And that was with Bobby Taylor. Was is that the band that you had this little adventure with when you first got there, or was uh, Bobby Taylor nope. kind of a later thing? Well, there was no. Actually, I was the only uh, survivor of that one band. <laughs> of the uh, it was uh, the Shades originally. The Shades. We were called the Shades. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason we were called the Shades is that the original members, there was a, a full-blood native, uh, uh, Sarsi native from Calgary, uh, Dick Bird. There was me, half Chinese from uh, Calgary. And there was Tommy Milton, 
a full-blooded uh, uh, black uh, descendant of uh, slaves from Texas who's living in, in Edmonton. And all because of the different shades, we call ourselves the shades. Yeah. And no, no, the band uh, that was, does your mama know about me was, was uh, Bobby Taylor and Bobby came later, but uh, another, another great story. How did that come about? The band, the shades, we, we would go to the States every now and then sneak in. Of course, you know, there was no immigration problem there. We'd just tell them we're going down for the weekend. and We'd be there for a year, and then we'd come back and tell them we were, <laughs> we were down here for a weekend. In our travels one time, we, we stopped in San Francisco, and we got a gig uh, at Big L's playing one night a week. And, uh, and that's where we met Bobby Taylor. He was one of the vocalists at Big L's, and he was an incredible singer, one of the best we've ever, I've ever heard. He could imitate anybody, you know, on the Motown roster. And so we ended up uh, playing that one night a week. And then on our drive back to uh, Vancouver, the drummer, Floyd Sneed and uh, and the singer, Tommy Milton, got into a a bit of a scuffle uh, argument. And, uh, And Floyd quit the band. And and then he joined another band called the Three Dog Night. <laughs> really? Was, so that was Floyd. Wow. He was the original. He's the original drummer of the Three Dog Night. Anyway, uh, so we had we had no drummer, and so we called uh, Bobby uh, Taylor if, if he could t- turn us on to a drummer. And Bobby said, "Well, hey man, I play drums. I can play. I'll be your drummer." And so. That's what happened. Bobby came up to be our drummer. And, of course, we had to buy him a drum set. Uh, he never owned a drum. And uh, and he could play drums. Yeah, he could keep time. And, uh, and But he could sing so well that uh, Tommy Milton, the original singer, he quit. And and so th- there we are no, uh, with Bobby. And then... Uh, because Bobby could sing so well, we attracted all sorts of uh, customers and and, and uh, good musicians. All the good musicians wanted to play with Bobby. And one of the musicians was this uh, composer named Tom Baird. And, and Tom wanted Bobby to record some of the songs that Tom wrote. And, and in the meantime, I was, uh, I write poetry. And so I had a, a book of poems. I don't know. We rehearsed somewhere anyway. My book was there. And so Tom Baird went looking through my book and, and he, he saw that poem, uh, does your mama know about me? <laughs> and he says, uh, let me make this into a song. And I, and he did. And so he, he, it was all my words, except the, the chorus where uh, we've got to be strong, can't stumble or fall. Tom wrote that. Nice. And, uh, and we went to Motown and recorded it. And then, and that was a big hit. It was a big hit. Diana Ross recorded a version of it. Jermaine Jackson recorded of it. The Harlettes recorded it. Uh, There's quite a few people, you know, they yeah. took the, to that song. And it changed Motown, by the way. How did uh, how it change? Well, Motown, before that was, uh, you know, they did that uh, 
girl is gone, you know, my girl. It was all about girls. But then when we got into the social aspect of it, you know, and then they came up with Papa was a Rolling Stone and Love Child and yeah. all the things. And Diana Ross, I said Diana Ross recorded my song. Does your mama know about me? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We changed uh we changed a lot with Motown, you know. I mean, we we instigate because we had a mixed band. We we're all different nationalities and Motown they they, they they took to it, you know. They liked it. How long were yeah. you in uh did you guys have that band for before you kind of separated? I mean, from what I saw there was a little bit of a you were fired but not fired kind of thing. You had a conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah, Gordy. yeah. No, I got fired. I got fired. Well, you know, the interesting thing about the, the Vancouver's is that we, we were so close to history, you know. So, like, for instance, uh, we're playing in a little club in, uh, in uh, Chicago, uh, the Regal Theater. And uh, this, uh, this uh, band, a group of kids from... Uh, Gary, Indiana, just won a, a contest. And the contest, the prize was opening up for Jerry Butler and Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's. And, of course, that band was the Jackson 5. And, and so then Bobby took it upon himself to bring the kids and Joe to Detroit to get signed with Motown. And it took him months, but uh, Bobby did it. He got him signed, and and of course, uh, the rest is uh, history. All kinds of history. Lots yeah. of musical history there. Yeah. So, when was there your transition into into comedy? Was that were you doing comedy before you met Cheech Marin, or did you? Kind oh of... no. Well, the only comedy I was exposed to was being in the band with black guys, you know, because they they just that was. One one laugh after another, you know, just crazy, crazy. That's how that's how we the the black uh, race survived the, the, the bullshit. You know, mm -hmm. they they did it with comedy. You know, uh, uh, yeah, they they had comedy. You know, when when, when you realize how much. Uh, humor played in in, in the black uh, experience. Uh, then you uh, because it was really humor that that kept them that made them famous. Right. You know. Uh, you know the the way. I mean, they they created that whole blackface. Uh, everybody wanted to be uh, like the like the Negro. You know. They, you know. So much so that that the, the a lot of the blackface performers were whites, right? You know, and uh, and they had shows like Amos and Andy, you know, they were all copies, you know, and and it wasn't to be to do demean anybody, for sure. It was to entertain, to 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 get in on on the the windfall because uh, you know being funny and black made could make you rich if you did it in the right right way you know right because that the one thing of the, the, the black man created was fear the white man knew that 
that their day of reckoning was coming, you know, because they treated the, the black people so mean and so vicious that eventually the shoe would be on the other foot. And, and these guys knew it. That's, that's why the Klan was formed and, right. you know, uh, the white, all the white supremacist shit started happening. But what I found is that the blacks, well, everybody, Chinese, blacks, everybody used humor and stereotypes to, to, to make it in, 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 in show business uh, or, or life, period, stay alive, you know, because uh, it's, it's hard to kill someone that makes you laugh. Yeah. In fact, you 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 want to want to keep them around, you know, but but if but if you know in your heart that someone hates you, you know, it's not hard for them to uh, do, to find some excuse to uh, to lower the hammer on you. Yeah. So so the uh, so the humor aspect was huge, huge, and 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 the Uncle Tommy, that's what they called it. That's right. what the blacks called it. You know, Uncle Tom. You know. And I don't think it was until maybe Stokely Carmichael or, or some blacks from the islands, you know, from Jamaica or from uh, uh, Barbados or that, you know, where they had the, the black uh, pride and the black uh, dignity, you know, that would, uh, uh, you know, then, then, then they were on moving, you know. Like Sidney Portier, you know, Sidney yeah. Portier was not about to be Uncle Tom and anybody. No. You know, and uh, and rightly so, and 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 people respected that. You know, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. On the other hand, he he got a lot of abuse. You know, uh, because he was funny, he could be funny, and he could dance. He was insanely you know? talented too, uh, and it, oh. I've, I've heard some of some really nasty things that you know he went through, and it's just like, oh. the the ignorance there is is one of the things that's always infuriated me, but. Unfortunately, ignorance is, is part of being human. Um, but he was an insanely oh, sure. talented, talented man. Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, black or white, yeah, no, Sammy, Sammy was one of the, the most, and conflicted too, you know, because, uh, you know, I got to know a lot of them. I think, I think the most influential black, well, comedian or person, period, uh, to me, it was Red Fox. Oh, I love him. Uh, I grew up on him, and, and he, was, he yeah. was hysterical. I saw him in Detroit with, with, with Bobby, yeah, when I was there with Bobby. And uh, that was one of the great things about being in Detroit, you know, with all the clubs and, and all the comedians. You know, yeah. you, you couldn't get it in Canada. I saw uh, uh, Red Fox in, uh, in Detroit. And I saw him, he did two hours the first hour, he brought the crowd up so high, and then he brought them down so low that they were running out of the club. He had some jokes that were so nasty, so <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they couldn't take it. They got up and left, uh, and he went and opened the door for them. And then he got back up on stage and brought the, the crowd that was left up for another hour. Two hours. I, I've never seen that done ever before. And I've seen all, you know, I made a point of seeing all the, getting to know all the comedians yeah. and all the, especially, you know, since I got into it, you know. Well, you, you kind of came up really in the 70s, which was, 
you know, prior, very, very early, well, late, yeah. late seventies was Eddie Murphy, early eighties was Eddie Murphy. Um, yeah. How did you and, and Cheech kind of decide that you guys had good chemistry? Like what, where was that genesis at? It was mostly me because Cheech, when I met Cheech, he was 23 years old. He was uh, in Canada be, trying to become a Canadian because he didn't want to go to the Vietnam War. Uh, and he did, he wasn't a comedian. He wasn't. Uh, he had he had done some folk singing, but basically uh, he was uh, he was totally into transcendental meditation. He was into pottery. He was he he'd worked with a world class potter. And when I met him, he wasn't going to clubs or anything. Uh, a friend of his. Uh, we needed one more guy in our in our uh, improv acting group. Uh, the word went out that I was looking for uh, a straight actor, straight man, you know, mm-hmm. the guy that can do the cops. And uh, this um, boss of teachers said, a little Russian guy, he said, uh, I know this, this kid, and why don't you come out and meet him? Come on out to my uh, uh, newspaper office and, and meet him. And I, and I did. I, I met Cheech, and uh, he has short hair. He's, he looked like a Mooney, you know. He was like, a, you know, he had, he dressed kind of like Johnny Mathis, you know. He had a Johnny Mathis kind of vibe about him. Got it. And, uh, and uh, so I met him, and then I invited him to the club to see and I loved his attitude because he wasn't like, oh, I can't wait to work for you. It was like, uh, so, so what do you have? Is it worth my time? You know, he had that attitude. A little reserved as well, yeah. Yeah, and then when he walked into the club, we were on stage already. We were working, and we are backstage. We were looking through the curtains at this guy, and he came in with one of the prettiest, foxiest women I've ever seen. She had full-length mink coat knockout never saw anything like it in Vancouver <laughs> and so I said to myself well, he's hired <laughs> <laughs> so he so he he watched the show and then he decided that it would be worth his time to do it you know he always had that oh, that regal you know shit don't stink kind of attitude you know <laughs> and uh and so we hired him. First, he just watched what we did, and he was like a writer. He would help us write bits and that. And then uh, we started putting him. Then he started putting it, doing his own bits. You know, he had had a few bits of his own that he wanted to do on stage, and he did. And they were great. They were funny. Uh, I had no idea he was a Chicano at all. Until, uh, oh, and then after Cheech joined the group, uh, we went, we worked for a while, but uh, it lost its its magic, you know. When you replace one guy in, in, in anything, it loses it. Right. And that's what happened. That's what happened. And so my brother wanted to go back to the strip uh, thing, you know. It was like uh, the my, my idea was just temporary, you know, the show. We tried the show for a while, and then let's move on. And so the only guy that wanted to keep doing it was Cheech. 
just teaching. I teach. He had just joined the group, so he was ready to work. The other guys, you know, they were the doorman. They had other things to do. And so then Cheech and I stayed together, but we, we formed a band, an orchestra at first, because that's, I, I was, I always thought I'd be going back playing guitar. You know, this, this little respite was just a, a little adventure mm-hmm. until we put a band together, Cheech and I, you know, it wasn't hard, you know, a lot of musicians out of work and, uh, we got a gig playing a battle of the bands, but uh, Chief and I decided we'll, we'll do a little comedy first. Well, we did 45 minutes and we couldn't get into the music because we'd done comedy on the whole time. And so, next thing you know, the show's over and the band never played a note. <laughs> and the bass player said, Well, when's our next gig, boss? That <laughs> was very funny. It's kind of like lightning. And so, that, so that night, that night, we decided, well, we saw our future, you know, right. we can work, we can do comedy together. And so then we're trying to think of a name and the windshield wipers on my dad's car quit working. It was raining in Vancouver. And so we had to take turns leaning out of the window with a coat hanger and working the windshield wipers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so uh, we're, we were going through names. Was I driving? At, I must've been driving at the time. Yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, Richard and Tommy, no, Marin and Chong, no. I said, uh, don't you have a nickname? And he said, yeah, Cheech. And right then I was outside the window going Cheech and Chong, Cheech and Chong. Yeah. Yeah. Cheech and Chong. You guys had a, a long, a long run of touring before you, you decided to make your first movie what was kind of the genesis of that well we had seven years of, of touring and at first oh we loved it then the the second and third trip to australia was too much work you see if, if you're working in la and you're a chicano and everything's beautiful but australia there's no chicanos uh you had to kind of change the show, and and we did it three times. I I, I had enough, and so I I was working with a, a film writer, and and I and I come up with this idea of a, of a movie, um, Jack and the Weed Stock, <laughs> and it was going to be the the weed stock grows enormous heights and we crawl up and early. That was the movie I was working on, and then I told. Then they, they had the Australian gig ready to go. And I said, I don't, you know, uh, we got to do movies. We got to get out of this touring rut, you know? And so everybody agreed, including Lou Adler. And so Lou, but they didn't agree. I didn't even show them my script. You know, uh, I was waiting for the right time. And, uh, and so it was like, make a deal first. And, and so, uh, as we went, went along, we'd, Cheech and I, uh, oh, I, I went, I wrote a song called Up in Smoke. And I, and I took it to the to the office one day and I played it for Cheech and Lou. And Cheech said, that's the name of the movie, Up in Smoke. And then uh, Cheech and I decided that it would be the, 
the Pedro and Man characters that are in it. And then we started writing the movie. And we had a director. We were going to go with uh, Floyd Mutrix, but Floyd was a little preoccupied with his life, you know, as, as you would expect. And uh, he had no idea what Cheech and Chong were about. You know, his ideas of comedy did not gel with ours. So Lou decided that he would be the director and that Cheech and I would work, you know, we, we, like we did the records. Right. You know? And so that's the, way, that's the way Up and Smoke got made. Now, I wrote most of the, the movies. I, I, I hate to blow my own horn, but one of the reasons we broke up is that uh, Cheech and Lou, they would not give me credit, you know, right. unless they were pressed. And then it was like, uh, sort of like, uh, mm, yeah, I guess he did. You know what I mean? There was no, yeah. it was, it was no support, you know, for what I did. And I, and I know the reason the movie was a, a fucking smash was because I reshot the ending. You know, Lou Adler had, put a movie together that wouldn't have seen the light of day. It wouldn't have seen, it wouldn't have even gotten shown really? um, because the ending was so bad. You know, the ending lose ending was, it was all a dream. <laughs> Can you That's kind of a lame that? way out of that. <laughs> oh, and so what I saw is what's going on now in reality. Uh, uh, it's like reality TV. That's when we kind of split with Lou uh, as far as uh, the creative part goes, you know. Uh, and, and that's when I, 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 I told everybody, I, I rewrote it, but I have to direct it. You know, that's when I become a director. And, and so I rewrote the ending. And the ending is, uh, was one of the reasons the movie is still, out, still a hit today, you know. I actually just watched it over the weekend and my 16 year old or soon to be 16 year old sat down and he was pissing himself. So, I mean, <laughs> it, it shows that it's, it still holds its weight and, and it's, it's heavy oh, yeah. as, as a comedy. So, so you made, oh, yeah. you made a handful of movies with, um, as the duo and then you guys went your separate ways was when you separated, was that kind of when you started your, your advocacy? No, have actually, you always been an advocate? no, 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 I was never, well, you know, just, just who we are and what we did, you know, that was the, the movie itself was, uh, was, uh, uh, really, I, I had it bigger, you know, I had the, the smoke getting airline pilots high, <laughs> <you know? laughs> uh, but the, the budget never, you know, allowed for that. Uh, no, uh, what, it was all a process, you know, because everything was new to us, you know. Uh, and and with, with, with Lou, Lou has always been a, like an opportunist, you know. Uh, and, uh, and you can't blame him, you know. He, he really was responsible for Cheech and Chong's uh, record success, for sure. Uh, and uh, and I, I really can't begrudge, you know, because I know the universe takes care of everybody. It takes care of itself. You know, you can't steal. The reason you, you can't steal is because it, it doesn't belong to you. It, it won't stay. It'll only bring you 
a bad karma, you know, uh, whatever you steal. And, and basically that's what, what, what Lou Adler's career actually ended with, with, uh, with Up in Smoke, when you think about it, you know. He, yeah, he had Rocky Horror as a producer. But as a, any any kind of creative thing, there was he tried another movie called I think The Stains or something uh, with uh, with the uh, the tubes and and that movie you know flopped badly and that was it that was it and then his record you know uh, he, not, he had nobody you know Carol King left I mean there was you know that's what happened. You know, so that's why that's why you can never bear any grudges or, or any Ill, Ill feelings because and that's why you have to forgive because uh, when people do things like that they harm themselves and that's why forgiveness is so important because you don't want to be part of it you don't want to have any kind of uh, attachment to that kind of uh, things you know that's why you forgive you forgive all the time you forgive for yourself you know and then you're clear you're, you're clear like like i was uh, totally clear i had a chance you know if i, if I wanted to to go after lou and the, the the chance was there i had the opportunity because his uh lou's uh, uh, uh bookkeeper whatever guy with the money he sued me uh, because I, when we were doing Up in Smoke, we were right in the middle of uh, constructing uh, uh, my house. I had moved from my, Malibu back into Bel Air, and, uh, and I ran out of money because we weren't working, we weren't getting paid, and so I needed money to finish my house. And so I went to Lou, and Lou turned me on to uh, Bob Green, who Bob Green you know, come up with a hundred grand, but it wasn't from Lou's uh, uh, account. It was from Bob Green's account. <laughs> and so at the end of the movie, it looked like Bob was going to be out a hundred grand. So he sued me for the money. And then in the countersuit, we had discovery. And then that's when we did, when we found out that there was some hanky panky going on with the bookkeeping. Got on it. the Cheech and Chong side, and that we'd paid for a lot of things that we didn't know we were paying for, and the movie was one of them, and and, and the end of the movie was one of them, you know. So technically, I had enough grounds that I could have snatched the movie right away from from Lou, right. but that would have created so much bad karma all the way around, you know, that it could have affected the movie, you know. And so rather than to do that, I just, you know, we got paid, you know, maybe not what we could have got if we'd sued, but, but we got enough. You know what I mean? When you, when you get paid enough, you know, uh, the, the lawyers that actually had to pay, <laughs> you know, there's, they, there's a point uh, where you're content. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, that's it because it, when, when you, when you go into, Legal things like that, it can be, uh, there can be so many, much harm. It's best to get out of it, you know, yeah. as fast as you can. When did you, um, your your heyday, so to speak, in the, the late 70s and, and 80s, 
you were kind of around Gold's Gym and things like that. And there's there's a lot of big names. What was the the culture like in Gold's Gym around that time frame? Gold's Gym, yeah. Oh, it was the best. It was the best. I joined Gold's right almost in the beginning of Gold's, and uh, it cost twenty five bucks for three months. That 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 was that was the uh, cost, and of course I paid my twenty five bucks, and I was there, and and, and they said no, uh, no instruction, put the weights back. <laughs> that was that was the rules. Oh man! Then then they all came in there. The Arnold came in. You still and, talk to Arnold by chance? Oh yeah, yeah. Whenever we see each other. Right. When when I got sick, Arnold looked me up. And he heard that I had cancer, and I think he heard that I was dying. He looked me up right away, and you know, checked out. Tom, are you okay? I said, <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Arnold, yeah. Uh, Arnold's really funny. He's funny. When he was quite a, he was in like everybody influenced by Hollywood, right. you know. And so one time. When he was training at, at, at World Gym, he was always training for Mr. Olympia, always training. And, and um, But then in between, he would train other people, uh, you know, if they were the celebrity. And this one girl came up to me one time, and she looks a lot like Demi Moore. And she grabbed me aside, because I made friends with everybody there. And she goes, Arnold thinks I'm Demi Moore. And I says... He's training me. And she goes, I don't know what to do. Should I tell him? I said, no, hell no. Play it up. <laughs> so, so one day she said he came in there and he just ignored her. So he found out that she wasn't Demi. When did you become part of uh, one of the advisory boards for normal? Okay. That was when I went to jail. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's, that's when I became an activist. You know, I, I, I you know, cause the first first time out, I, I remember I was out um, and I was performing at uh, uh, the comedy store uh, for uh, it was kind of, kind of like a benefit or, so, or a roast for uh, Polly Shore, a uh, Polly Shore, and, and that was my first time out and. Uh, in the press, all they wanted to talk about was, uh, you know, me going to jail for bombs and uh, and all that stuff. You know, <laughs> they didn't want to hear anything about Paulie Shore. <laughs> <laughs> Who does? <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, I, I've always uh, and then you know I was a, I, I, I what well, you know what got me in trouble was that I used to go on right wing radio a lot. They love me, in Fox too. Uh, like I was on Bill O'Reilly, uh, yeah, Bill O'Reilly, a couple of times. Sorry to hear because, that. Because, <laughs> uh, well, because I was so opposite Bill, right? And and he would try to insult me, or he would insult me, and I would kind of counter back. But it, it, the ratings went crazy. Yeah. And so when they, whenever they had me on these talk right wing radio shows. I, I would piss everybody off, and they they would be going crazy. Like I was on Joe Rogan. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you saw that, but <laughs> Joe's a 
was a big fan of mine because of the comedy, you know, right? because I'm such a legend, you know, he was trying to be a comedian. And so Joe really admired me, but he, he had no idea where I, where I was, uh, you know, as what far as, uh, politically and gun rights and everything else. And, oh man, I had so much fun on his show. I pissed, you talk about pissing everybody off. Ooh, I got everybody <laughs> at that time. <laughs> because uh, first of all, I called everybody, you know, that, you know, you know that owns a, a weapon, you know, I said, uh, he said, well, how do you, what do you feel about gun rights? He thought I was going to come out, you know, for a gun. Yeah. Uh, no, I said, what do you need a gun for? You know, the only thing guns do is kill people, you know, and most of the time they kill the owner, you know? Yeah. So, so they're, they're not good things to have. You know, well, you suggest what would have come to break into your house? Take it. <laughs> <laughs> I've had I've had two guitar collections stolen from my house, and instead of getting pissed off, I get happy because that means I can get a new guitar. It's <laughs> <laughs> so always looking on I'm the bright side of, of things. Yeah, I'm tired of this old shit, you know. No, I learned real early, man. You know, don't don't be attached. Yeah. You know, yeah. What? There's nothing. Nothing. I had a forty thousand dollar Rolex watch stolen from my bedroom, and we know who did it too. You know, but you know, I never wore it anyway. That's why it was ripped off. You Material, know? so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, oh, the last thing you want to do is, you know, that's why people, I can understand collecting for a cause, you know, but collecting to own stuff, yeah, I don't know, I, it, it doesn't gel, because everything's, well, I guess one of the reasons is that my first memory is being in a hospital. And, and having beautiful nurses baby me. You know, that's my first memory. Uh, and because I, I was in the hospital for about a year. And then I was taken from the hospital and put in a orphanage, like a Salvation Army home. And so I've always been incarcerated at one point in my life or another. And one thing you learn about, you don't, you don't have attachment to anything. Because yeah. when my dad took me from the hospital, he had a whole stack of comic books and my personal clothes and everything. And he took it to the home, disappeared. It just disappeared into the population. I ended up, they handed me the home clothes, and that was it. I never owned a toy where I could say, this is mine, until, well, well, I never really, you know, I don't think I even bought a toy. You know, we'd carve. I, I was a carver. Okay. And so if I wanted a, a sword, I'd carve a sword. You know, if I wanted a, a gun, I'd carve a gun. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it was, that's what poor people did. You know, yeah. you may do, you see those poor kids in Africa, they got a, a steel uh, hoop and a stick. And that's their toy. Yeah. That's their entertainment. That's their, yeah, yeah. Speaking yeah. of your, your your time that you served, um, you were cellmates with uh, Jordan Belfort. Uh, yeah, Wolf of Wall Street. Was it you that pushed him to write the book, or 
where you had that go down? Oh, no, I, I, I would never push anybody. No, I was writing my book. And Jordan, you know, he was playing tennis a lot. He was a camp, camp uh, cupcake, you know. And so we had a tennis court. And, and uh, we had a guitar room. We had everything. And so I was writing my memoirs. And he'd come in from playing tennis. And then one day he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing, writing my book. And he says, oh. I, I, I'm, I'm going to write a book. And so, so Jordan, he, he's, he's really, he's really sweet. He's a, if you know him, you know, he's, he's deadly in the, I guess what, at what he does, you know, <laughs> selling useless shit to people. But, <laughs> but as a person, he's, he's really, really nice. You know, I, I, I liked him a lot. We, we got along really good because you know, he had his life. I had my life. You know, that's the way it is. In prison, you just whatever people do. You know, in fact, in prison, the weirder you the act, the more the, everybody leaves you alone. You know, so uh, so when I was writing my book, so he 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 got busy. And he he went. He wrote a couple of pages and handed it to me. He said, "What do you think?" You know, and. Uh, and I knew that Jordan was some kind of genius. He'd have a conversation, play backgammon with another guy at the same time. And he could do all the multitask guys. Very, very talented. He can fly his own helicopter. He all sorts of things. So he wrote this page and he hands me the page and I read it. And there's one, there's one rule I have. If you're really talented then the last thing you'd give the really talented people is a compliment. The first thing you give them is you shoot them down. You got to shoot them down because no matter how good it is, you know that there's something there that's better. Right. And so you never accept it. Now, on the other hand, if someone doesn't know how to write and, you know, and then you give them compliments. That's good. You did it. You, you stayed in between the lines. You, you know, you spelled the words right. You know, you give him compliments. Well, with Jordan, he wrote the first page of uh, Bonfires of the Vanities, you know, the Tom Wolfe yeah. novel. And I recognized it right away. And I was like, is this a joke? Are you, is what do you think? I says, you haven't written shit, nothing. <laughs> And he, the look on his face was priceless. Then he goes, well, what should I write? And I says, write those stories you've been telling me every night. Right. Write what you know. I said, yeah, write, write those. That's, that's gold. And then I, and, and, and he said, yeah, but I said, there's one rule. And he says, what's that? I said, it's a rule of the most of. And he said, what's that? I said, well, if you're going to get high, get higher than anything. I, I, said, I said, like the Bible. The Bible was written by writers. And so they didn't just cross the Red Sea. They parted the Red Sea. <laughs> they had the water on either side. And then the chariots drove through the mud and, and on the other side. That's the most of. That's what I'm talking about. And so, uh, 
he did. And then he started writing, and then he never came up for air. He would write, 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 and then <clears throat> we had a little our own dinner thing. Uh, you know, we had our own private chef. Not he was part of it for a minute, but then he got kicked out because he wouldn't do the dishes. <laughs> he would hire someone to do the dishes. But he, uh, but then when we got out, he pulled in front of my house one day. We're not supposed to fraternize with each other, you know, after you get out of jail. But um, so he yelled from the from the road, hey, I saw, I sold my book. Yeah, they're going to make a movie of it. Martin Scorsese is going to direct it. Yeah. Wow. All from that, 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 that little... One page. That little moment. <laughs> that little moment. Yeah. There's there's a ton of different things and, and topics that I can sit here and pick your brain about. But what uh what's what's the future have for you for the next uh, for the foreseeable future? The future? For you. Yeah. I'm I I think my 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 job on earth here is to uh, bring order and peace to the planet. And I've got some really good plans and how to do that with what we got with what we got that was that we we're, we're talking about this earlier with another podcast about the power of, of weed you know because it opens the uh, possibilities in your mind the creative possibilities and so uh so i've come up with a uh, a plan to uh, to literally save the planet and uh and i'm i'm, I'm really Starting to uh, put the plan in action, believe it or not. Did you, by chance, because you, when you were coming up through the comedy as a comedian, you were, you guys were really, I mean, clearly well known at, for for being stoners. Did you ever meet Jack Herrer by chance? Oh yeah, I know Jack very well. I knew him. I, I read his book, um, "The Emperor Wears No Wears yeah. No Clothes." Um, yeah, and the amount of information that he crammed in there was just mind blowing. And yeah. the things that could be done with hemp, not, not even this, the smoking of it, but the tectiles, the, the concrete, everything. Stone, everything that can be made out of that. If people would just everything. pull their heads out of their collective asses long enough to get out of the reefer madness mentality and really look at what's capable of that. I think that is a weed that can definitely save the world. Well, yeah, Exactly, exactly. And what it is, it, it's a mindset uh, that, that we have to change. Uh, and, but, and by the way, everything has a purpose. You know, there was a reason. Everything has a purpose. Uh, Trump, by the way, uh, Trump is proof that God has a sense of humor. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I've, uh, I've taken a little more than an hour of your time. I greatly appreciate. I'm going to throw a, a couple questions at you and to, uh, to wrap sure. it up. The uh, the first one, and, and this one's kind of on the nose. Would you rather see Oprah or Arnold Schwarzenegger as the next president? <laughs> well, definitely Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> I know Arnold too well. <laughs> Arnold was was promoting uh, 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 what do you call those hydrogen cars. <laughs> uh, no, Oprah, o Oprah for sure. <laughs> Would you rather be covered in bees or spiders? Bees or spiders? 
No protection? Mm, we'll say no protection, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I know. I, they, they both bite. I don't know. Probably spiders. I'll, I'll go for spiders. Because bees, their instinct is to, to kick yeah. your ass. I've, I've yeah. seen, I think if you're, if the bees are calm, I, I would want the bees. And again, these, this is now altering the question a little bit. But uh, I, I think on face value, I, I take the spiders as well. Yeah. And the last question. Would you rather spend a year living in a nudist colony or in an Amish community? Well, I, I'm I'm in a bad position to be nude, so I'll I'll, I'll, I'll pick the Amish. <laughs> I, I'm no. I'm in a in a similar boat. I would take the Amish too, but just because I would want to break from the Facebook and Instagram and and the nonsense that goes on. I think living a year to living off the earth, so to speak, would be a little refreshing and re-energizing. Oh, oh, can you imagine? Oh, I mean that that's so beautiful. That's what happened to me when I went to jail. You know, I uh, I ended up th- this uh, friend of mine has a had a big beautiful garden, a vegetable garden that he fed the homeless with, and the uh, you know the food bank, and us. <laughs> so I spent I spent nine months eating the healthiest and looking the healthiest I've ever looked in my life. Yeah, it was putting, incredible. Putting the positive spin on something negative. Yeah. Yeah, anything that you want to throw out for people to uh to, to find you follow you contact you or anything anything well i'm one hey 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 chong hey hey tommy chong i think <laughs> i don't know <laughs> hey find me buy buy my uh oh yeah actually i, I do um uh, buy my products i've got a plan uh and I, I, it's a little premature right now, but I, I'll tell you, I want to become, I have a plan to become the richest man on the planet. And, and the reason, the wealthiest, the reason I want to do that is that it's been my observation that the wealthiest people on the planet don't know what to do with their money. It's beyond them, yeah. you know, uh, because a lot of them are, are gamblers and gamblers definitely don't want to give up any money, you know. They never because it's easy come, easy go. And and some of them are hoarders, you know. They just want to hoard all this money. Again, it's useless. You can't play the game of life without uh, everybody having uh, money yeah. in their pocket. Uh, and so uh, I, I I I'm in. I'm going to be begging people uh, to buy my product. And to just give me money, make me the wealthiest man in on the planet, and I will guarantee that I will whip this planet into shape. I will, I will eliminate all the problems uh, with, the, especially with the uh, with the atmosphere. You know that my, that's my first uh, thing, and with migration, I, I've got a plan. I got a plan to. Uh, by nature, you know, we need we need wars by nature, but we don't have, need to have wars where we kill and slaughter each other. You know, uh, uh, we found out that the pandemic is very capable of doing that job for us. Yes, you know, yeah. So what we want to do is we want to. I want everybody on this planet to become friends. 
you know, to become friendly with each other. And we can do that if we share what we have. Like the natives in the in, uh, in Northwest uh, um, area, in Canada, especially the Haiti Indians, they have what they call a potlatch. And a potlatch is when uh, the chief gets so rich that he's got too much, they have a party and he gives all his riches away to people that need it. And of course, he doesn't have to worry about it because he's the chief. Right. And so he can give every, especially food. They give food and they have parties to the needy. Whoever needs whatever they need, clothing, everything else, they give to, he gives his wealth away to the needy. And so when I became, when I become the wealthiest man on the planet, that's exactly what I will be doing with my, with my, with my riches. Incredibly noble. Again, yes. sir, thank you very much for your time. I greatly appreciate the conversation. I greatly appreciate you coming on and talking to me. Oh, my, my pleasure, man. Anytime. Appreciate it. You need me, just call me. I'll be there. Appreciate it. I might have to take you up that got, again. <laughs> because you got a friend. <laughs> take care, man. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.